Well, I hate to start the podcast off with some depressing statistics, but, well, here we go. Based on the 2017-2018 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, the prevalence of obesity in women of reproductive age in the U.S. is 39.7%. Now, 39.7, let's call it for what it is, let's call it 40%, okay? Now, to put this in perspective, from 1999 to 2010, the prevalence of obesity had increased from 28.4% to 34%, but now we're basically at 40%. That's why in this session, we're going to review a new practice bulletin from the college from June of 2021, focusing on obesity and pregnancy. But specifically, I wanted to address C-section in the obese pregnant patient. Because, you know, is there one incision better than the other? What about thromboprophylaxis? And what about incision types? So these are all really practical questions that we need to investigate and summarize. So again, we're going to cover the ACOG practice bulletin, which is number 230 from June 2021, focusing on obesity obesity in C-sections, even though the practice bulletin is much broader, talking about obesity in pregnancy. If you're not doing what you truly love, stop and go quickly and find your passion. Life is too short to do otherwise. I love medical education and training up the new group of physicians and healthcare providers. This is Clinical Pearls. Obesity is commonly defined based on body mass index, or BMI. Remember that that's weight in kilograms divided by meter square. The World Health Organization organizes BMI ranges into six different categories. It's underweight, normal weight, overweight, and then obesity. But obesity itself is three different classes, class 1, class 2, and class 3. For underweight, that's a BMI of less than 18.5. Normal weight is between 18.5 and 24.9. Overweight is 25 BMI up to 29.9, with obesity class 1 being a BMI of 30 up to 34.9. Obesity class 2 is a BMI of 35 to 39.9, and obesity class 3 is a BMI of 40 or greater. Now, we know, of course, that obesity is an independent variable for adverse pregnancy outcomes, including even spontaneous abortion. Antepartum complications are also higher in the obese pregnant patient, and that includes things like cardiac dysfunction, proteinuria, sleep apnea, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, of course gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and child macrosomia. Now here's another issue. Obesity is also an increased risk factor for stillbirth. So these are all big issues, and it's not just about the BMI itself or its C-section issues, which we're going to talk about here, but all of the adverse packages that come with it. Now, remember that the recommendations for weight gain in pregnancy are all based on BMI, so that for underweight women, it's recommended that they gain 28 to 40 pounds for the duration of pregnancy. For normal weight women, remember that's based on a BMI of around 18 to about 25, the recommended weight gain is around 25 to 35 pounds. 
for overweight women, though, it goes down to about 15 to 25 pounds. And if they are obese, which is for all classes, then it's recommended that they gain no more than 11 to 20 pounds maximal. Now, in addition to those medical issues, remember that obese women also have an increased risk of fetal structural congenital anomalies. And detection of these anomalies by ultrasound is, as expected, significantly reduced with increasing maternal BMI. Now, as we're focusing on C-sections, remember that numerous studies have reported an increased risk of cesarean delivery among overweight and obese women, with the risk increasing based on BMI category. However, maternal obesity alone is not an indication for early induction of labor. And remember, of course, the data does show that obese women do have an increased rate of labor induction because they seem to have, oddly, an increased risk of prolonged pregnancy. Now, before I get into C-section logistics, I have to say a quick word about TOLAX. Remember that although some data indicate an inverse relationship between pre-pregnancy BMI and success rates for vaginal birth after C-section, this has not been demonstrated in all studies. Pregnant patients, of course, have higher rates of complications with elective repeat C-sections, but they also face higher rates of morbidity with TOLAC. So, of course, we have to say that the decision to proceed with either a repeat C-section or a TOLAC is, in ACOG's favorite use of the term, shared decision-making between the patient and the physician and the healthcare team. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, let's get into our C-section logistics, starting off right off the bat with the use of antibiotics. Well, of course, antibiotics are recommended for all C-sections. And if they've had ruptured membranes or they're getting an intrapartum section, remember the inclusion of Zithromax for atypical coverage. But the question is, what's the right dose? Some recommendations are based on general surgical procedures and suggest a 2-gram prophylactic ANCEP dose for those who weigh more than 80 kilograms. Now remember, that's about 175 pounds, with an increase to 3 grams for those who weigh more than 120 kilograms. That's around 265 pounds, okay? So the question is, is it 2 grams of ANCEP or 3 grams? Now, few studies have specifically addressed this question of weight-based dosages for C-section administration. The truth is, in a study of normal weight, overweight, and obese women who received 2 grams of ANSEF 30 to 60 minutes before skin incision, drug concentrations in adipose tissue were inversely proportional to BMI. But wait! There's more. In a double-blind, randomized controlled trial of women with BMI of 30 or greater, these women were randomized to antibiotic dosages of 2 grams or 3 grams of ANSEF. Adipose tissue concentrations actually were no different between the two dosage groups. So conclusive recommendations for weight-based administration of antibiotics are difficult to establish because of a lack of evidence demonstrating different adipose tissue concentrations or 
or decrease surgical site infections. So here's the short of it. Two grams or three grams, there's really no evidence one way or the other. Most would stick with one gram for normal weight women and then go to two grams for overweight or obese women. But three grams is probably just not indicated. This issue of two grams versus three grams was also addressed in the practice bulletin in 2018, which was antibiotics in labor and delivery. That was practice bulletin 199. And in that bulletin, it again states that two grams, yes, three grams, not so much evidence-based. All right, now that we've given antibiotics, what about the incision? Well, again, the optimal skin incision for primary cesarean delivery in class 2 or 3 obese patients has not been demonstrated. One study using data from a perinatal database reported that a vertical skin incision was associated with a higher rate of wound complications compared with a low transverse skin incision, and that makes sense. The relationship between skin incision and the development of wound complications in women with class 3 obesity was evaluated in a secondary analysis from the MFM unit's cesarean registry. Now, what they found is, after a univariate analysis, what they actually found, and it makes sense once again, that patients with a vertical skin incision had a significantly higher rate of wound complications, even after adjustment of confounding factors. And remember, of course, for skin closure, closure of the subcutaneous tissue, when there's a depth greater than 2 centimeters, can significantly decrease the incidence of wound disruption because you're closing that dead space. But don't use a drain in all the studies that have been done with C sections where there's been a subcutaneous drain, they've actually had an increased rate of complications. So closure of the sub-Q, yes. Drains, no. And talking about closure, no specific skin closure technique has been overwhelmingly found to have decreased rate of infection. In some studies, that's staples. And in other studies, it's suture. I am a big fan of suture. I think the data is there. But the truth is that there's just not enough evidence for one being pushed to the other. Skin closure techniques and supplemental oxygen have not proved successful in decreasing the rate of post-op cesarean section infectious morbidity. Oh, I know that just messed up everybody because everybody feels so strong about whether staples or suture in the obese patient. But remember, one of the most recent randomized controlled trials was actually in the Gray Journal in 2018. And it was a comparison of staples versus subcuticular suture in class 3 obese women. Well, unfortunately, and very disappointingly, in class 3 obese women who underwent C-section, there was no difference in composite wound outcome for up to six weeks postpartum between those who had staples or those who had subcuticular sting closure. I'm telling you, everyone has looked at this through some different angle. In 2019, out of the Journal of Maternal Fetal and Neonatal Medicine, out of Egypt, they actually took a look at interrupted suturing compared to continuous sutures of the subcutaneous space at C-section. And what those authors found was that subcutaneous wound closure using interrupted techniques was actually much better compared to a continuous wound closure. Well, if you're going to do that, may as well use staples. But you see how the data is just so varied? The truth is, avoid contamination, use the appropriate antibiotics, avoid seroma formation by closing the sub-Q space, and then just close based on your best preference at this time since the data just does not push us one way or the other. 
All right, guys, as we wrap this up, let's talk about thromboprophylaxis in the obese patient. Remember, of course, obesity is a risk factor for VTE in the general medical population, and the risk, of course, regarding pregnancy is highest in the postpartum state. Now, at least mechanical thromboprophylaxis should be done before cesarean delivery, but if it's a stat section, don't waste time trying to find the pneumatic compression hose. Just go in and do the section. We can take care of the other things post-op. But remember, ideally, mechanical thromboprophylaxis should be done before the cesarean section begins, if at all possible. Now, in addition to the use of pneumatic compression devices, the American College of Chest Physicians recommends early mobilization after C-section and the use of pharmacological thromboprophylaxis if there's any other risk factors. Well, of course, obesity is that risk factor. The American College of Chest Physicians currently recommends low molecular weight heparin for the prevention and treatment of venous thromboembolism instead of unfractionated heparin. Now, here's the question. What dose do you give? The optimal prophylactic dose of low molecular weight heparin has not yet been determined. Surprise, surprise there. But enoxaparin or Lovenox 40 milligrams daily is commonly used. But it's likely not enough. I right, get ready because here comes your clinical pearl. A prospective sequential cohort study compared venous thromboembolism prophylaxis using either a weight-based technique or a BMI stratified dosing technique. Venous thromboembolism prophylaxis was started 12 hours after C-section and the weight-based protocol was 0.5 milligrams per kilo Lovenox BID or the BMI stratified version, which was if their BMI was greater than 40, then they received 40 milligrams of Lovenox BID. And if their BMI was 60 or greater, they used Lovenox 60 milligrams BID. The primary outcome was anti-factor 10A concentrations that were in the adequate thromboprophylactic range, and they used a range reference of about 0.2 to 0.6. Well, anti-XA concentrations were significantly greater in the weight-based group. Remember, that's 0.5 mg per kilo BID compared to the BMI stratified dosing. So given these results, weight-based dosages for venous thromboembolism thromboprophylaxis should be considered rather than BMI stratified dosaging as the best way to prevent VTE, especially in class 3 obese women after C-section. So let's review that again. The weight-based version is 0.5 milligrams per kilo every 12 hours, rather than just saying everybody gets 40 milligrams Lovenox every day or 40 milligrams BID or 60 milligrams BID based on their BMI. Instead of using just BMI itself, look at their specific weight at 0.5 milligrams per kilo every 12 hours. And that seems to be the most effective way to prevent venous thromboembolism in this population. They should start 12 hours after C-section. Hey, we're thankful for you, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.